Awesome. We're in this series called Unlikely. It is week two. Brian did a great job preaching week one. Um, I got to teach the first week of the series over at our Lincoln location, which is super fun. Uh, here's what this series is for. If, it's, if this is your first week here, this is a series for anyone who has ever felt unlikely. It's anyone who's ever felt unlikely to be chosen, to achieve greatness, whatever, whether that's something that you can control or you couldn't, right? Whether it's you feel unlikely because of your upbringing, your statue, stature, the way that your family was when you grew up, whatever it is, this series is for you. And today we're going to hear about what, from the world perspective, is one of the most famous underdog stories of all time. Here's something interesting. I think as a culture, we love underdog stories. We love upsets. Where are my people who love March Madness? Where are my people who love March Madness? I think one of the reasons why we love March Madness so much is because of the upsets, right? Where a 15 seed can beat a two seed, where we have these examples of, you know, NC State beating that Houston team that was led by Hakeem Olajuwon, who's just an absurd height of a human being. Uh, Villanova beating Georgetown, George Mason beating UConn, that Dunk City, Florida Gulf Coast team that also beat Georgetown. I'm really sorry if you're a Georgetown fan. Like, you guys are good, but had a lot of losses. Uh, Butler made that huge run to the Final Four, and then Stephen Curry, right, when he was at Davidson, um, looked like a 15-year-old kid out there on the basketball court, somehow doing incredible things to bring that team deep into the tournament. I think this, there's, there's something about an underdog story that captures our hearts. I love underdog stories. Growing up, I always viewed myself and was viewed as an underdog. Uh, I was a year ahead in school for my age, and my dad is five feet two inches tall in shoes. So, you know, that growth spurt that, that hit did not hit me the same way that it hit my peers <laughs> when it finally happened. So in high school... Uh, the sport I gravitated to was wrestling. Uh, yes, wrestling's a thing where you wear the weird singlet. Yes, we'll get, just move past that. Uh, but wrestling is cool because it's the one sport where you're not disadvantaged compared to your peers, even if you're younger or smaller. Because in wrestling, they have weight classes, right? And everyone has to wrestle inside their weight class. I remember very vividly, it was senior year. We were going into the meet against our number one rival, and there was another kid on our team named Billy who was a really good wrestler. And he weighed roughly the same as me, but not quite as little weight as I did. And so Billy was a kid who came up to hear on me. And I always knew, like, when I wrestled kids who came up to hear on me, I'm like, oh, you're just jacked. Right? Um, and so I remember we're going into this meet, and at Billy's weight class was a two-time state champion. So what Billy did is he cut weight. And so Billy lost enough weight to get down to my weight, and the coach said this. He said, John, you're going to wrestle up a weight class today. I said, John's going to do what? He said, yeah, you're going to give I was like, coach, I'm giving up 10 pounds. I made districts last year. This kid won state twice in a row. He's like, yeah, here's what I need you to do, John. Don't get pinned. In wrestling, right, if you get pinned, the other team gets six points. If you only get kind of slaughtered, you lose by four points. You can lose by three points, right? And so he's like, John, we just need you to go out there. Don't get pinned. So I have in my head, right, like these underdog stories. And I start to psych myself up. Wrestling is such a mental sport. And so I start to psych myself up. I'm like, you know what? This is going to be one of those underdog stories. It's going to be awesome. I start to psych myself up. I'm like, yeah, maybe I won't get pinned. Maybe I'll even win. 
Like we're, we're going to shock this gym full of people, right? So I'm, I'm hyped. I'm jumping. I'm, I'm ready. We go out to the mat. You know, we, we get ready. We shake hands. Rush blows the whistle. Boom. In 12 seconds, I get pinned. <laughs> but I, like, I had this conviction. I was like, no, this could be an underdog story. It wasn't. <laughs> but I think there's a power in the underdog story, right? There's something that captivates our attention, and I just, I think this, like, even in that moment, although I didn't, I far from triumphed, I always remember just how much I, I believed in myself. See, there's a power in an underdog story. I believe this, that in our life, there are all types of giants that we face. Maybe it's something as ultimately trivial as a, as a high school wrestling match, but maybe it's something more serious. Uh, I remember when Rose, my wife Rose and I were, were married. We'd been married for about a year, and uh, our, our career at the time, we were actually missionaries for a Christian organization. And there's a long tradition of missionaries raising financial support um, from people, which is a really fancy way of saying we asked people for money, and that's how we got paid. Uh, Mom and dad did not love that life choice, but we made it anyways. Uh, and so I remember we had a donor, we, like, God provided for our needs, and it was just incredibly cool. But then we had a donor one January who had given a large monthly sum, and then abruptly, with no communication, stopped giving. I remember looking at the, the bills that were coming due that we couldn't change, and thinking, God, I don't know how to face this. Maybe you have also faced a, a financial giant, Right? A decision that you made that put you too far into debt. You got laid off at work and it wasn't in your control. You got hurt somewhere and you couldn't work anymore. Whatever it is, you looked and said, I don't know how we're going to make it this month. Maybe though a giant that you face is something different. I also remember, and I've told the story a few times, when a couple years into our marriage, my wife Rose got diagnosed with severe depression. That was a giant for us to face. I didn't know what we were doing. Maybe for you, that giant is something in your mental health or, or, or a loved one's mental health, and it's affecting you as well. I don't, I don't know what it is for you, but I know this. All of us have giants in our life that we need to face. All of us have a battle in front of us at some point, probably multiple points in our life, that feels like we are the underdog, that feels like we are unlikely to survive, let alone triumph. I actually think that's one of the reasons why God tells us this story of David and why he wrote it down in the Bible. Why he wants us to hear the story of David and who he is. Because we, we see David, and we talked last week, right, how he was unlikely to be chosen, unlikely to be anointed, but he was anyways. And so today we're going to keep going in that story of David, and we're going to talk about a battle that David had to face. A giant, really, that he had to face. And it seems so unlikely, especially in the world's eyes, for David to succeed. And so from this story of David, I think we're going to have pull out some key things that are going to give us encouragement and insight and even a little bit of a guide as we ultimately face the giants in our lives as well. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. Um, it's a pretty long chapter, so before we read some of the text, we're kind of going to summarize uh, the beginning part of it. If you were here last week, you know that David has been chosen and he's been anointed. Um, he actually went and worked as a musician in King Saul's court for a season. Uh, and then he came back and he's tending his sheep again out in the field. And then the Philistines are this opposing army that is coming to conquer Israel. They have their sights set on Israel. They have their sights set on Saul. They want to conquer Israel and Saul. And uh, Saul and the Israelites are terrified. Because there is a man who, who probably puts even like Hakeem Olajuwon to shame, right? Like a huge giant. 
that is, is walking out. He has his armor bearer who's carrying the hundreds of pounds of armor. He has all the finest weaponry, and he's saying, I need a challenge. Bring out your best warrior and let us fight. Winner takes all. And this type of combat, this type of challenge was common for that day. And so no one in Israel's army like, wants, to, wants to fight Goliath, right? It's that moment that I had as a wrestler too. I'm like, John's not wrestling up. We're not doing this. But David, right, David has this moment that stirs inside of him. He has a feeling. And so in, in 1 Samuel 17, we're going to pick up in verse 32. It'll be on the screen. It says this. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So we see in this part of David's story, the first thing that if you're taking notes, I want you to write down today about how do we face our giants? How do we face our battles? And it's this, through your faith in God. Through your faith in God. It's interesting, right? David tells Saul some practical examples of why he thinks he will be able to face down Goliath. Saul's trying to talk him out of it, and David has these practical examples where he says, you know, I've, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear, which is just in, insane, Right? Like, if you've, you know, like, we carry bears. We don't face bears. We carry bear spray. We run, we, I don't know. I don't hike enough to know. I think you run. I don't know. Maybe you make yourself big. I don't even know how to do it, let alone kill a lion or a bear, right? And so David has these experiences. And if that was me, I would be like, Saul, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I killed a lion. I killed a bear. I got this. I'm all good. Like, don't worry. I got it. But David doesn't do that. He says this. He says, Goliath defied God. And just like God rescued me from those animals, he will rescue me from Goliath. It's interesting. David's faith in this moment isn't in himself. It's not in his strength. It's not in his past experiences of his own strength. Even though he has every right for it to be that way. He didn't put his, his faith in the army surrounding him or look at the analytics of how does Goliath fight and how do I fight and this is why it's going to be the best. No, he has this faith in God. And I don't, like, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of times when I've struggled with facing my giants in the past, a lot of times it's because I've put my faith where it doesn't belong. I put it in myself, into other imperfect humans, into, into, into data, right? And all those things are good things to account for, but none of them are that most important thing, right? That most important thing is to have a foundation of faith in God, and we see that when, when David puts his faith and he puts it in his foundation of trusting God, it actually gives him a boldness. And here's how you know that it's for God and not for David, is that the boldness doesn't come across as arrogance. I think we've all dealt with arrogant individuals. We've all dealt with individuals that are full of themselves, that are brash, that we're like, okay, we get it. Like. But David, in this moment, it doesn't come across as arrogant. It comes across as confident, as bold. I think this, like, you know you have faith in God and not yourself when your boldness doesn't seem arrogant. And I think this, the longer we spend in the presence of God, the more confidence that we have in what God is able to do. David has spent so much time in God's presence. It's interesting, we see here, David knows something that the rest of the world doesn't. 
He spent time in God's presence. He's, he's confident in who God is. And so he knows that what the world is going to look at as an underdog fight, David actually knows the odds are stacked in his favor, not against him. Because he knows this, that God is with him. God is for him. And he goes, I've seen God work. I've seen God move. I've seen all the things that God is. And because of that, I know that they think I'm down and they think I'm out, but it's already over. I think there's that confidence that comes from being in the presence of God. I think this, if you're facing a giant in your life and not spending time in the presence of God, it probably feels like God isn't able to help you. You've forgotten what it feels like to lean into the presence of God. You've forgotten what it feels like when God helps you. You've forgotten what it feels like, as Brian described last week, when God grips a hold of you. I know in my life, when challenges came up, when battles came up that I had to face, when when giants were in front of me, my time spent in the presence of God, whether that was reading his word or praying or going to church to be in the presence of his people, were the first things that I got rid of when I felt stressed. I don't know about you, if you've ever done that, when I did, like, that doesn't go well. I start to ask God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? He's like, where are you, John? There's, a, there's, a, there's an old theologian who said this. He said, I have so much to do today. I think I need to spend the first half of the day in prayer. I think, what if we aligned our priorities differently? What if when we were stressful, we didn't try to do things in our own power, in our own time, in our own manufacturing, but said, God, I'm going to lean into your presence and trust that you have this. Because I actually know this, I don't have this on my own, but with you it says this, that the odds are in favor of me. Like if you're, if you're here and you're, and you're struggling and you're facing something in your life, can I ask you this, will you still lean in? Like will you still go to your growth group? Will you still go to your anchor group? Will you still spend time with God in his word? Will you still spend time praying to God? Like yeah, you might need to take a break from serving like four times a month. At church. That's fine, like just will you lean into the presence of God still? And if you're here and you're struggling and you've never tried to lean in the presence of God, I encourage you, like, try it. God can show up in incredible ways when we say, God, I need you and I'm here. Will you help me? So we jump back into David's story. He's convinced Saul to allow him to fight. And so in verse 38 says this, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. There's a line in there that David says that I love. He says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. It's the second thing we see on on how do we face our giants. We're actually supposed to face our giants in a way that fits us. You need to face your giants in a way that fits you. Uh, continuing with the themes of embarrassing sports stories from John's childhood, uh, I was really into baseball growing up. Still, I love baseball. I named my sons Griffy and Cy. Um, and so as an, as an eight-year-old, right, on the Little League field, they were moving us around to different positions. And they said this, they said, John, we're going to try you out at catcher. Now, if you're playing baseball, right, like pitcher and catcher are the least boring positions in the field, Baseball can be boring to play. Let's just say, I love baseball. I can say it. It's fine. We'll move on. But catcher, like, you're involved in every single play. And again, remember, I'm pretty small growing up, and Little League teams don't have huge budgets. And so the equipment that they share is what we can call one size fits some. And I was not some. And so I remember, you know, I'd put on the, the, the shin guards. They're supposed to go to your top of your knees, and they would come all the way up to here. 
the chest protector that's supposed to like come to here would like drop down to here. Um, we did find a mask that fit because I had a weirdly shaped head. Um, it's fine. Um, we're going to talk about this with my therapist later. It's great. Um, but, you know, so I was, I felt very, very protected, right? So I get down in, in my stance and I get ready to catch and I, I just like every part of me is covered. I'm like, I'm not getting hurt. It gave me confidence, right? Like this armor that didn't fit me. But because eight-year-olds are throwing, you know, probably once every three pitches, the ball would go five feet over my head or six feet that way. I'd have to go to the backstop and, and pick it up and throw it back to the pitcher. So I'd try to stand up, almost fall over, and I, I would, like, shuffle. And you could hear the, the, the shin guards and the chest protector, like, clanking. It didn't fit. It took me, like, 15 seconds to go get the ball and then throw it back to the pitcher. And if I had let those times that I played catcher be kind of a barometer for my baseball experience, I would know I'm bad at baseball. I wasn't. When I played middle infield, when I played second or short, and I was able to take off all that armor that didn't fit me, I was able to run and be quick and make turns and be agile and jump out of the way of the runners, I was really good at fielding. I think this, when I was playing catcher, I was trying to play in a way with armor that didn't fit me. I just wonder this, like how often do we seek out armor that doesn't fit us because we think it's better? Goliath had huge amounts of resources poured into his armor. There was probably tens of people that had helped construct his armor, his sword. It was exorbitant. It was a status symbol. It was all these things. He was leaning into what he and other men could provide. And then in contrast that, we see David who's leaning into God's provision through creation, right? Like he's actually picking up stuff from the ground that God made. And David's saying, I'm not going to rely on man. I'm actually going to rely on God. I think there's something really, really powerful in that. But there's also something really smart about how David approached it. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a lot of books, but one of his books is called David and Goliath, and he examines underdogs and why underdogs are successful when they are. And he actually said this, that, that if you look at, you know, armies that fight, you know, an underdog army, if an underdog army uses guerrilla tactics in battle, it will win 63% of the time. If it doesn't and tries to fight fire with fire, it only wins in 29% of battles. It's as likely to succeed if they fight in a way that fits them instead of just returning fire the way that the enemy did. I just think this, how often when we face our giants are we trying to wear someone else's armor? How often do we listen to a friend's story or a story on Instagram or TikTok or a book that we read and try to become someone that we're not? Like there are experts for sure. And it's so important to listen to people who've been there. It's so important to listen to people who fought the giants that you're going to fight. But we have to remember that stories aren't prescriptive. They're stories. They are inspirational. They are not prescriptions. I think this, like, stories from those well-known people, whether it's friends, whether it's influencers, whether it's books, whether it's experts, whatever, I think they're meant to inspire us. They're not meant as an instruction manual. I think too often we're looking at them as an instruction manual and we're fighting in ways that we're not supposed to fight and going, why isn't this working out? How often have you had a boss or a mentor or someone that you wanted to achieve the same level of success as and tried to mimic everything that they do and realize, I'm not that person. I wasted a few years of my life trying to do this when I was like, oh, I just can't be like so-and-so until someone much older and wiser than me said, of course you can't, you're John. 
I think this too often we're trying to fight battles in ways that we weren't meant to fight. Mark Twain once wrote this. He said, you know, tradition isn't wearing your grandfather's hat. It's buying a new one from the store like he did. I don't know about you, but sometimes I try to wear my parents' armor. Sometimes I try to approach things and I go, what if I did this like dad? What if I did this like mom? What if I did this like grandpa? And I realize like that armor doesn't fit me for a reason. I'm different. And that's okay. I just, like, is it any wonder that when we're trying to wear armor that doesn't fit us, we don't succeed? I want us to ask that question today. Where are you trying to wear someone else's armor in a battle that you are facing? So we see David, right? We'll jump back to him. He, he, he doesn't have Saul's armor. He is approaching this the right way. He's now facing Goliath. So in verse 45, he says this. David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. If you're under, like, you can underline that, the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down onto the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. There's two lines there that really stand out to me. The first is this, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And the second says this, the battle is the Lord's. David has one more piece of information that's so important for him. It's why he knows that this isn't actually an underdog story, but the odds are stacked in his favor. And it's the last thing that we need to remember at all times when we face giants, when we fight battles, which is this, he knows the end of the story. He knows the end of the story. What I mean by, I think in moments where it seems like we've been knocked down, in moments where it seems like we're defeated, we have to remember that God often has a different definition of victory than we do. We see this in a letter that Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, wrote in 2 Corinthians. He says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're going to have the band come up as we, as we close out. And I just think this, that God delights in turning the world upside down. I think there are moments where we look at God and go, God, it feels like I lost. And God actually looks at me and says, no. Like, because you are faithful, you actually won here. At times, I think, too, is this, that what we can count as a victory, God looks at us and goes, you didn't win. Look at how you treated people. God says this, and in another part of Scripture, he says, you can have everything. You can do all the right things. You can lay out all the right things. But if you don't have love, you've lost. And there's a humility in that, right? There's a humility in that where we need to look and say, God, what are you? Okay, God, it's your definition, not mine. But there's also a hope. And the hope is this, that the story does not end here. That in those moments when something 
awful happens on this side of heaven, we go, God, how could you let this happen? We have a friend who, who cancer took away their earthly body far too soon. Where you see someone through no fault of their own get laid off and, and go through months and sometimes even years of financial insecurity because they go, God, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Where we see these tragic moments, we have to trust that God says this, that while we have lost things on this side of heaven, he promises us on the other side we'll receive tenfold. That, for, that every time we worry and say, God, why would you, why we live in a world where someone's body can waste away? He says, I've actually promised a new life and a resurrected body on the other side of heaven. We know this, the story does not end here. When you have your faith in God, there are no more underdog stories for you. God actually says this, he says, the victory is mine, it's not yours, and that should be freeing, that we don't have to worry about it anymore. There's a promise that we see lived out in Scripture and a promise yet to come. The promise that we see lived out in Scripture is this, that from David's descendants, we get Jesus. From David's line, his broken, imperfect line of people, we get Jesus. Jesus who came to earth and lived a perfect life. And in what the world thought was going to be the end for Jesus, the religious leaders and the government leaders conspired to execute him. Said it's over, it's done, this movement is gone. And what to God was not an underdog story, but to the world was, Jesus rose again three days later and he conquered death. Jesus says, you don't have to fear death anymore because I've been there and I beat it and I fought it and I came back and that victory is mine. He promises this. He actually says this. He says, I'm the final David. The last one that the world thinks is an underdog and I know the score and it's not actually an underdog story. I'm going to come and eventually defeat brokenness for all time. Here's what you need to know, church, is if you're here, you're in this room this morning and you haven't said yes to that, God wants you to. If you're here and you're trying to do things on your own, you're trying to make it through on your own, you're going, I don't, it's not working anymore. There has to be a better way. It's because there is. There is a better way. It's the way of Jesus. So if you're here and you haven't said yes to Jesus, maybe today's that day for you. I say, God, I'm tired of doing it on my own. I'm going to say yes to your way because I know I can't fight this battle on my own. Only you can. I just think this, there's a lot of us in this room that have said yes to Jesus, that we know in our heads that the battle is Jesus, but we don't know it in our hearts. I think a lot of times it's because we're going into battles, we're facing these giants, and we're forgetting what we saw in David. Forgetting that we have to rely on God, not ourselves. That we have to do so in a way that fits us, and that above all, we must go into every single fight knowing how the story ends. Church, will you stand with me as we pray? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the story of, of, of your, your servant, servant David, God, who, who loved you, who you said was a man after your own heart, God, and the lessons that we can take from David. God, may we who have said yes to you be more like David as we approach battles the way he approached Goliath, God. May we remember first and foremost that it is through you alone and not our strength. God, if there's anyone here who is facing a battle, who is facing a giant that feels overwhelming, God, may your presence surround them. May they grab a hold of them. God, may we always remember that the victory is yours and that you are with us in every battle we face.
And God, we also pray for, for those who are in this room who don't yet know you, God. That today would be the day where they say yes to you, where they say no to doing it on their own and yes to doing things your way, God. May they feel the freedom that comes with that. God, we thank you for everything you've done, everything you're doing, and that you're going to continue to do in our lives. In your name, amen.